Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About cult makeupness. <laughs> about Cornwall, strangely. About rat catching critters. Uh, about linguists. About female linguists. Cunning linguists. <laughs> about secret millionaires. About long cons. <laughs> about twins. About good and long suffering staff. Mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week. This week, y'all. It's one for your pal Morgan. <laughs> it's The Proposition by Judith Ivory of the Baltimore Ivories. <laughs> Tickling those ivories. <laughs> so we covered another one of her books very early in our tenure, Beast, which I felt funny about at the time we reviewed and has since become just a light unto my life and a lamp unto my feet. I return to that horny wrist kissing scene all the time. I will say that Judith Ivory's obsession with the eroticism of hands <laughs> does not disappoint. It never disappoints. And I also think she does a great job of making broken people folks you're still rooting for. Mm-hmm. No question. So what's the proposition about? Okay. I'm reading this from the large print edition. Checked out from the Chicago Public Library. It's available on the seventh floor of Harold Washington. If you ever want to see me, hang out there. I'm there most weeks. A large print romance. No man, gentleman or otherwise, has ever looked at Lady Edwina Bullish the way the brash, handsome man standing before her is doing now. Edwina has accepted the challenge to transform incorrigible Mick Tremor into a gentleman in just six weeks. And although the linguist is sure she can rise to the task, she isn't at all certain she won't swoon under his frankly sensuous gaze before her job is done. Mick has lived outside of London society long enough to know that appearance can be deceiving. Edwina might look all buttoned up, the perfect English lady, but there is unleashed passion just beneath her placid facade. Mm. And as she prepares him to take his place in society, Mick prepares Edwina to take her place in his heart. Wah, wah. Ellipses. In his bed. And in his bed. Ah! You <laughs> it. I could write this shit. You could. Through skillful writing, Ivory captures the subtle sensual pleasures of her colorful characters, creating a sexy variation on My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. Publishers Weekly. Publishers Weekly. So I want to start not with our hero or heroine, but with our plot device, uh-huh. which is Reverse Pygmalion. A Reverse Pygmalion. Not our first Reverse Pygmalion. Not our first. Now, Reverse Pygmalion is when the woman's on top, but she's facing away. That's Reverse Cowgirl. From the male. Okay. It's like the cunning linguist is the lady. Okay. So the blowjob becomes, comes before the cunnilingus. Okay. Is that right? The Same. blowjob comes before the cunnilingus is a problem facing our nation. <laughs> <laughs> Not just in reverse Pygmalion. <laughs> yeah. As someone who loved My Fair Lady as a kid and then hated it later <laughs> and then saw a version of it two years ago and like wept with both horror and joy. I have mixed feelings about Pygmalion and My Fair Lady in general. So Pygmalion is actually a Roman myth. Yes. The myth is what gets directly cited in the proposition. Mm-hmm. They don't talk about Enre Iggins and his lip syncing Audrey Hepburn in this book. No, no, no. But he is an artist and a scientist and he creates a woman out of clay. Out of clay. And then he's like, I'm in love with her. I'm in love with her. But even when he asks the gods to give her life, he like denies his like desire for her, which is like a key point. So in this book, Edwina Ballish is a, well, her father was a duke. Okay. This is actually very convoluted. So her father, <laughs> 
father was a marquis. He was going to inherit the oh, dukedom. Right. So the marquis was his courtesy title at the time. And then he died before he could inherit the dukedom. And then on the heels of her father's death, her grandfather dies. And so she's immediately disinherited from everything. By her like dad's second cousin, who was right. like, next in line. And she had sort of anticipated that her grandfather would have been able to lean on the second cousin to help provide for her and make sure that her dowry was paid out. But yeah. since her grandfather died, she was left with absolutely no male protection in a yeah. world where you need one. And the community, the Ton, was horrified at this, chastised the second cousin. So he did leave her one piece of property, her father's house in town. Mm-hmm. And he was a linguist and she herself is a linguist. And so she's made a tidy little career out of turning country gentry ladies and preparing them for their season, yep. teaching them manners and elocution and all that good stuff. And she is... Well, do you want to speak to the heroine since I did in the last book? Sure. Tell I mean, us about Edwina, a.k.a. Winnie. I think you've done a really great job. So that's what she does. She has this sad backstory. Also, she had a nasty governess. Her mother left when she was six mm-hmm. as a spontaneous adventurous woman who was too cloistered in her marriage and then died mm-hmm. by having too much fun. She come, died from fun. That comes back to haunt Edwina for mm-hmm. a long time. And one of the things that struck me first and hardest about this book is that Edwina is written as someone who has real and intense social anxiety. And it's written in such a way that like, I immediately recognize it for what it was and like it didn't have to call itself anything except like racing heart and like an inability to quiet your mind like she yeah. has general anxiety disorder because she's like under a ton of stress all the time but also like that's just the way her brain works yeah. and like she's constantly second guessing herself and she's constantly rethinking scenarios and she's like what did I do to make them feel bad yeah. it's like you didn't do anything bud but like she can't there's no off switch to her anxiety yeah and there's also like shades kind of explaining her isolation like yep. they talk about how big the house is that she grew up in and how there weren't other children around and her mom wasn't around. She just had her governesses and her father who was generally disinterested and a butler. Milton. Milton. Could only really like uh, approach her in certain scenarios. And like, actually like took her into his sister's house whenever she was disinherited. Yeah. That scene in particular really got me. And it's like two sentences where it's like she's kicked out of her ancestral home and the home that she's grown up in and Milton the family butler who was there when she was born and like has been with the family through all of this takes her to his sisters the hired help is the person that this 17 year old girl falls to and like you know Downton Abbey whatever 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 gross 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 but Carson and like that's immediately who I pictured in Milton like here is a man who is like not paid enough to do the things that he does and by virtue of the fact of working in close proximity with this family he's really truly grown to care for this woman and mm-hmm. cares deeply for her and mm-hmm. like there's this moment later where through the hijinks of the novel Mick our hero is living upstairs yeah while she's training him to be a lord and Milton her butler approaches her and is like I think it's not for the best and like regardless of what society says I don't think it's best for you and like that was so sweet but also like terrible and rigorous yeah. in like the society class lines yeah and, and she's saying like he kind of couches it and like what they both both understand to be basically double speak where he's like I think Mick would be more comfortable yeah. when it clearly means like I think you and everybody else would be more comfortable right you and all the other upstairsers would be more comfortable if he was downstairs slash I would be more comfortable as your stand-in father figure aka butler hired help yeah because like Mick's transition from rat catcher to studying to be a lordling oh does and- indeed upend the social hierarchy of the yeah. house. Yeah. Another important point, Edwina never got to debut. Right. Because the year her father died was the year before her debut and her mm-hmm. uncle was like, not going to help her out with that. Yep. And so she never got to debut and so she's only been like teaching the theory of being a debutante and has never actually lived the practice of being a debutante. Right. She's never been to an actual dance. She's never actually danced with a man. She's like a cloistered virgin in like the worst ways possible. Like she knows all of the moves of not being that thing but like has never got to enjoy any of those pleasures even though it's her profession is to give it to other women also like her birthplace so then like she's like really unmoored because there's no descending right like she has her living but she can't be anything less than lady bullish without a further loss 
but she can't move up because no one will marry her because she doesn't have a dowry and yeah. is totally disinherited. So she's really adrift in the ton, as it were. Yeah. She considers herself horse-faced. She's extremely tall, small busted and pear-shaped. So she's got an ample butt and long, long legs. Which is actually how we are first introduced to our character. Tis. Via the perspective of our hero, Mech. Nick. Should I take it from here? Please. Let's hear about Mick. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Who were you picturing as Mick the rat catcher when we like first meet him right after his first bath? When he still had the mustache. When he still had the mustache? The mustache. Like an actor? Just like anybody. Yeah, an actor. I was really able to picture a full-fledged character. Like not anyone that I'm able to like immediately pin it on. But I would say Kieran Hands Mm. and Tom Hardy. Like a cross between those two. Yeah. But Tom Hardy is like one of the only actors you hear using like a working class English accent on the screen anymore. I had a really hard time because it's like this mustache and hair combo. I was like Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck, Tom Selleck, Tom Selleck. So hot. Oh my God. And then like Edwina's obsession with him shaving his mustache, I found really, really infuriating. I like really wanted her to stop. And then when he finally shaved it, I was like, fuck you, Edwina. Physically hottest romance hero I've read. There it is. Whoa. There it is. Why? Let me lay it out for you. Please do. Mick Traymore, rat catcher, secret royal. He's tall, which I have a problem with being like, tall girls are hot. But it's like, There it is. We've all been conditioned. He's strong and muscly, but in the way a working class, like someone who works with their body all day is strong and muscly. So not in that kind of like vain or self-conscious way. He's got an almost indecipherable way of speaking, which means he's very good at like speaking with his body. He's very expressive that way. He's got a mustache. Oh my God, his mustache though. He's got longer hair, Mm. dark hair Mm. that keeps pushed back. He's got a lot of chest hair and the hairy arms. All the hair. I love it when she refers to his chest hair as like a cushion between muscle valleys. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, I'm ruined! (laughs) (laughs) Ruined! It's like, I I know immediately what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) And he loves animals. He does. He has an elderly ferret who helped him get his start in the rat catching game. And she's not really great anymore, but he carries her in his pocket and he feeds her tea and little nibbles throughout the day. And he loves her. And he also has a dog that follows him around, a little Jack Russell Terrier. And he's actually got like a whole cadre of dogs and ferrets that he has trained in his job as a rat catcher. He's very astute and observant. I don't know. He's perfect. He's not perfect, though. That's what makes him perfect. Yeah, exactly. And there's also something about he's not trying to be the smartest guy in the room. And this book isn't concerned with making him the smartest guy in the room. But he's so gosh darn capable. That was one of the things that I really loved about this book, where it's like capability was the thing that was valorized over. Like like, inherent charm. Right. Like a stick-to-itiveness, where it's like there's this scene where she can't sleep and she goes, because she sees a light in the library and he's there and he has six pages of notes and he's just been reading all night and he's like, I'll read when the bet is done. She's like, let me look at your notes and he has detailed every word that he doesn't know and he's put the book that he doesn't know it and the page number and then like where it is in the sentence structure, like up or down and then he's like, at the end of the night I look them all up and then I read them again Mm -hmm. so that I know what the word means and then tomorrow night if I don't remember I'll go over it again. And it's like that kind of work. Yeah. It's just work and that he was up for it and that he's like excited to learn new words and excited to learn new ways of speaking. When he hits a wall, he gets frustrated, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't quit. Yeah. And he doesn't try to make it like above it or better than it or he doesn't need it. Like Mm -hmm. there's never a point where he's like, or, you know, whatever. He really commits to it and he is getting paid for it, which is also, or in theory, he's going to be paid for it, which makes sense. So he comes into this bet because he goes, to catch a rat at a dress shop and he's on the ground looking for rats and he sees the most beautiful pair of legs he's ever seen and he becomes uh, rather enamored with this set of legs and through the dressing room but he catches the rat this well-to-do woman in the dress 
shop offers him sexual favors. The dress shop owner is like, you little scallywag, you get out of here with your rat catching. But instead, he starts feeling up the girl who owns the dress shop. And he is caught in flagrante uh, with his hand up her skirt by her family and is chased through this very fancy tea shop. Two twin brothers stop his arrest by saying like, oh, no, like he's cool. Like, why don't you be cool? Well, I'll be cool. We'll pay for this. And then the two twin brothers are like, oh, we recognize Edwina Bolash. Like she's made huge strides for these young ladies. Let's make a bet between us twins whether or not Edwina can pass this guy off as a lord at this big ball that's coming up. And the ball happens to be that of the cousin who disinherited Edwina. And so she's up for the project. So Mick demands that he's paid because he's a worker at heart and I absolutely love that. Mm -hmm. And he moves into Edwina's house. He moves his elderly ferret into her carriage house so that she can hang out in the sunshine. He is able to keep one of his dogs. Magic. Magic. Such a good name for a Jack Russell Terrier. Such a good name for a Jack Russell Terrier. And uh, they start the process of learning, which includes Edwina suggesting that she might have to put her fingers in his mouth. (sighs) And that's when he he reveals his feelings for her. Like, let me show you my widge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Edwina is initially like fascinated by him because he has this really strange accent. Like he has a Cornish, a Cornish and Cockney and but he's also an incredible mimic. So she'll say a word and then he'll repeat the inflection perfectly. And so then she's like, oh my God, he's like the best people ever. Yeah. Except he's like, you can't just tell me the thing. You have to tell me the why of the thing or the how of the thing. So then all of a sudden we're like deep into language lessons and it's like watch how my tongue flicks my teeth as I say E or and like, like ow and he's like I don't you don't have to ask me twice but yeah it's like and then reading this book it's like I never thought that the sessions with Henry Higgins and Audrey Hepburn were like sexy when she's like A E O U but like boy when Edwina Bolash is like you gotta and he's like I felt that in my pants <laughs> I'm like, I did too. <laughs> yeah. He kind of realizes partway through living with her that the legs belong to her because she receives a package from the dress shop. And he's like, oh my God, That's all these are your legs. And so he starts fumbling. Like he starts being incapable and he starts being bad at managing the situation because he's so excited and so attracted to her. And he says like, if I do this, you have to show me your legs. For 10 minutes. For 10 minutes, I want to look at your legs. And they go through this long negotiation process. And he's like, for 10 minutes, I get to see your legs up to this point, halfway up your petticoat. All the way up to your thighs. All the way up to your thighs. I can look at it for 10 minutes. And then for one minute, I get to touch your leg. And Edwina, in her naivete, thinks he's going to like hold on to her calf. One leg, one hand, one touch. Yeah. And uh, he says, I'll do one hand, one leg, one touch. I'm going to very slowly drag my hand up the back of your leg. All the way up to where your bum has that perfect little arc. Like he describes exactly what he's going to do. Like this scene, listeners, where he tells her what the deal is and what she gets out of it is that he's going to shave off his incredible mustache, which like fucking mistake. Because she's so distracted by it. Yeah. And it like like, reminds her of his like masculinity and she thinks of her herself as Delilah and if she gets rid of Samson's hair she'll be able to manage the situation right because his rampant masculinity will be tamed yeah exactly it's like you idiot and so he looks at her legs for 10 minutes and then when the moment of truth comes he shaves off his mustache he's like all right I get my one minute of touching and he turns her to face the wall and says I'm gonna spend one minute dragging my hand up the back of your leg and then what happens she freaks out not only does she freak out like because the thing that he does is he doesn't do the thing that he says right he takes liberties where it's like he pulls that hand all the way up because she's basically at this point she's deeply uncomfortable she's a cloistered virgin this has gone way too far it's not a game anymore and so he's like I'm gonna do this thing he's totally explicit and she's like shaking and uncomfortable he turns her to face the wall his like hand is up her leg and then he fucking reaches for Uh, her fucking pussy yeah he cups his hand around her vulva he cups his 
full hand around her vulva without her consent and she immediately bursts into sobs. Yeah. And he stops. He stops. And then he like puts his hand on her shoulder and he's like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. And then like, it's too much. And then he's like hugging her. And then also he has a heart on because of everything that he said. And then he's like pushing that into her ass while she's still sobbing against the wall. Yeah. She doesn't understand what's going on. It's Oh, my God. See, like, this book was hard for me in a lot of ways, in the sense that, like, Mick is sexy. And this book is maybe one of the sexiest books we've read this year, maybe of the whole podcast. This book is on fire in terms of sexiness, anticipation, and delight. But one of the things that I found really hard was that Mick understood himself to know her better than she knew herself. He's like, I just have to push her to yes. And that always felt two shades too gross. Yeah, his whole project is like, she wants this. She just doesn't know she wants this. I have to very patiently wait until she, which is a disingenuous way to have a relationship. I don't think he ever says like, we're going to be friends like no. or anything like no, that. No, nothing like that. He's explicit about what he's doing, but like his explicitness doesn't make sense to her because she doesn't know what explicit carnality is. That's not in her experience. Yeah. And I just find myself really sensitive to like unconsenting pussy grabbing since 2016. (laughs) I don't know why I feel that way. (laughs) It was cupped possessively. The fact that she sobs for so long and that we spend so much time with him thinking about her sobbing. I mean, it's not great. It's not great what happens. But there is something of the what I enjoy about a romance novel is that it's fiction Mm -hmm. and that I'm able to enjoy like taboo boundary pushing without having my boundaries pushed totally and without feeling like I'm compromising myself and so maybe that was why I was so like drawn to it is that it felt especially cathartic like someone wrote a scene of pussy grabbing for my pleasure Mm -hmm. you know as opposed to this what was actually said by the president of the United States and what was actually done by him and also like the narrative around it that has become very insistent and constant, you know? And the re-ownership of this idea of like, maybe I'm putting too much into this, but this idea of like regaining ownership of the concept of grabbing by the pussy, making it like a battle cry also feels like, you know, it's still a lot. It's still a lot of trauma to revisit all the time. And like the time. And it kind of feels like someone who's been like grabbed inappropriately and in ways that I didn't like in public places where no one did or said anything like the idea of pussy grabs back is almost like a little I'm getting a little fluttery thinking about it like a little nervous and a little I feel the blood coming to the surface of my skin you know I honestly don't feel empowered by it no as a concept I don't either and that was one of the hard things about especially like the women's march and all of those signs where it's like pussy grabs back and I'm like I wish that were so I wish like that revenge thriller teeth were a thing yeah but like it always starts with a trauma but also teeth is kind of marketed as like a bit of a comedy right and like it's not funny yeah yeah like a movie like teeth that doesn't even interrogate like why the myth exists Right. And for me, like this part of the book, and like I have to like preface this, like this book is incredibly sexy. Like I I had a full body flush more than five times in this book. Like it was pretty regular, frankly. And like this scene, I like I cannot express like when he tells her what he's going to do and the fact that like she is on the needle point of anticipation, excitement and sheer terror. Yeah. And then it just tips one way and not the other. Because he doesn't do what he says he's going to do. Right. Yeah. He goes too far. And like, you know, one of the things that I appreciated later in the book is that he's really insistent that he's like, you have to ask for it. You have to participate. Like, you know, I'm like, we're not going to revisit this scene where like your eyes say that you want it and then you sob for an hour. Yeah. Like and, you know, so like in that sense, like here's a hero that learns. Yeah. I think maybe that's part of it is the fact that he's like, oh, shit, I fucked up. And his initial reaction is be like, I think you wanted it or you would have. And then he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. And then like Like, he has that and he's like, I mean, I didn't mean it like that. And like you weren't and like he even says you were doing this thing to me. And he's like, no, that's wrong. You weren't doing anything. It was me. Yeah. And like to have somebody work through a non-apology to a bad apology to an actual apology. Yeah. Felt 
kind of like a revelation. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, this scene is so, and I knew it was going to be like a lightning rod moment in our discussion of it. Certainly. And so I really had to think about like, why do I like this? Mm -hmm. And why am I okay with this? And I think part of it comes from the fact that for whatever reason, Judith Ivory has made me feel like I was in good hands up to this point. Mm -hmm. Whereas like with Joanna Lindsay, I was constantly hoping I was going to be in good hands. You really never know. And then, well, you never know with her. But I was like, you know, just trying to hold on or like Kathleen Woodowis, you know, I was like hoping that it would get better or even like some of the scenes in uh, more contemporary stuff we read, like what was the other cartoon character cover we read? Oh, the... Kiss quotient. The kiss quotient, like stuff that went wrong there. I was able to kind of like let this go. And I think I felt like a real catharsis and like a real reimagining of this kind of scenario through this text. That like the fantasy wasn't just that a man would think I was beautiful secretly to himself, but that a man would realize he made a mistake and feel genuine remorse for what he did in an instant, just based on the fact that I expressed I was upset and that he had broken in a rule. Yeah, and a rule that like we had set together. But isn't that crazy that that's a fantasy? That I'm like, here's where romance has found my true fantasy. Someone assaulting me and then feeling bad enough about it, apologizing to me in the right way. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh, but that's no. not the book's fault. That's not the book's fault. That's our conditioning. That's the that's way we were kid- raised. Yeah, yeah. And like that was part of the thing about this particular scene for me because like, you know, not to get like too personal, but like I had an incredible summer with this human being that I was like really into as a teenager. And like this very thing basically happened to me where I was like, I don't want you to go this far. And he's like, I think you want it. And then I was like, I'm on the edge of delight and terror and I don't know which way I'm going to tip yeah. until I do. Yeah. And then like I tipped into terror. Yeah. And like my body shut down and everything shut down and like he didn't read the bodily signs and I didn't feel confident in myself enough Mm. to be like, no. Yeah. So then like, you know, this thing happened and it like it wasn't great and I didn't love it and I cried afterwards and he was like, what happened? And I'm like, what do you mean what happened? You were there. Like, yeah. And so like this scene for me, like it, it did feel like a catharsis to have a guy immediately step back and be like, oh shit. And then he's like you did this wait I did this like that was it was interesting how it felt so true it felt so true the character said everything wrong but then said everything right Mm -hmm. and then left her alone for like a month not only that but he's like here's the thing so if you want me to leave the house for good leave me a note like you don't have to talk to me for the oh yes he's like i'm gonna go outside you take as much time as you need i'm gonna take my dog for a really long walk yeah when i come back leave a note leave a note and you just tell me what you want and that's what i'll do Mm -hmm. and she leaves him a note that says we'll never talk about this again we were, were gonna act like this never happened we're gonna go on learning in the way we were before her butler is like i think he should move into the basement she's like i think you should move into the basement he's like i'll move into the basement yeah it's crazy but like now that i'm talking about it i'm like this is wish fulfillment i loved this book start to finish i'm like oh wait it is a sexy book i feel it like it's an so especially sexy. sexy book but i think the thing that like really pushed me over the edge and was like i need to own this so I can revisit it all the time is the stuff where like her boundaries are respected and when they're disrespected they're appropriately like apologized for and like he makes up for it in the right way what was really weird about reading the internality of someone who recognizes that someone has very strict boundaries and that those strict boundaries were imposed because of a childhood trauma that is manifold right she's basically isolated by everyone in her life her mother leaves but then her mother is also treated as a Jezebel in the narrative right so like her mother leaves when she's six and then dies by the time that she's eight from having too much fun yeah so like fun got her comeuppance got her comeuppance so like fun means anything that feels pleasurable so then Mick sees Edwina as this like really sad character who's erected these rigid boundaries and never revisited them so he's like constantly in this mode of like I'm gonna tip your wall and I'm like reading it it's like I understand how you came to this conclusion but like as a human being I'm so uncomfortable that you've decided that someone else's boundaries need to be tipped 
isn't that what happens with so many heroines to heroes in yes. romance novels? That's all it is. Like mixed trauma. Mixed trauma is that he's poor and he doesn't Has too mind. many siblings, but he was loved. He, his mother is a sex worker. Yep. It's revealed. And like, Very he strangely. does it, That's not like a thing for him. He talks about going through his mother's death. He talks about like having too many siblings. He's actually middle class, but he lives at like lower means so that he can send money to his siblings. Like his trauma is never understood as trauma. It's kind of like this joyful existence. Like he has so much love and he's successful, you know, and like he's he competent. likes what he does mm-hmm. and he like he has his friends at the bar who he sees. Yeah, he has a he community. Go he's got his dogs. And I think like you and I have talked about this before, but like the kind of privilege that comes with being unconditionally loved as a child. Mm-hmm. And like I think what's interesting, especially when we talk about class and romance novels, especially it's like the trauma of not being loved and being upper class. It's like money can only do so much. Yeah. Where, and then it's like, you were poor, but look at how shining your soul is because you had to work hard and everybody had to love each other. Yeah. And like, that trope is fine, I guess. But also it's like the nuggets of truth in that where it's like when you are genuinely loved, it does like evident. Empower you. Yeah, it gives you a kind of confidence that is like actually pretty hard to shake off. Yeah. Hedy Lamar once said that every plain child should be told they're beautiful every day. Yeah. She was like, I'm actually beautiful. And my mom told me I was an ugly little weed and look at me like I'm famous, but I'm, you know, she was like the first celeb meth addict in addition to inventing cell phone yeah, technology. Bluetooth. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's incredible what it can do, but I think he, he certainly has like a superiority complex to her because of that. I think she has a superiority complex to him because of her class. class and it kind of creates like an even playing field for these two people to meet at yeah of course the playing field is secretly far more even than we could have ever imagined Boo. Boo. okay so turns out the twins actually started this bet because they don't have nick, any money they're counterfeiters they yeah and mick looks exactly like this long lost duke's son and it turns out it's the son of edwina's shitty second cousin twice removed. Yeah, and so they want to like pass him off as this guy and get a reward and that's why they have this whole scheme and then it turns out he's actually that little boy. He does like trains and the color purple. He chose it all on his own. Imagine that. Uh, And now now they can be together. Baby snatching is a weird thing. Yeah? Yeah, so like I read that. and No, I think baby snatching is like a cool normal. No, that's not what I meant. I meant like you know like it's a weird thing to like have as a plot device because like the first thing that I thought of and I'm like ooh rich person's baby was stolen Lindbergh baby like what are you getting out of this and then to like ferret the baby away in Cornwall yeah and like basically forget about it and then he like grows up to be a very competent ratchet catcher and then like all of the work that this book did about like competence and capacity not being about class or blood is just fucking blown out of the water yeah oh my god which is such a disappointment because it is a drag because she thinks like she works so hard to get over he's just a rat catcher turn my rat catcher into a prince and we could live together but he's a rat catcher she's a rat catcher she has a moment where she's like we could do this we could do this we can go to a cottage in the country and we can have a very happy life like he's bringing in first of all middle class income she's living a middle class lifestyle to be honest and together their incomes could do the whole thing where she's like she wasn't going to give up her linguist and teaching country girls how to speak right for a debut. Yeah. So then together their income could make them quite comfortable. Her yeah. fantasy was so achievable. Her fantasy was so achievable. And the butler gets him a job as a footman because he's tall and he's like, I'll elevate my station and be able to pay my cousins. But it's just because Edwina won't share the fantasy of moving to the cottage because she's like, I'll always be Lady Bullash. And it's like, no, it really doesn't matter what your title is. But for the book, it matters so much like this fantasy of being titled as well as comfortable that exists in romance is very frustrating it's also like really specific to historical regency and like I guess this is Victorian but like this title business because like in some romances that we've read the title is a real burden to bear yeah and like it comes with like too much shit but and it's like- still always there. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, I guess, is this too American of me to say, but like, fuck all that hooey? Yeah, 
yeah. I'm like, yeah. It's like, it was silly. He's not going to sit in parliament. He doesn't know anything about that. It's like, and the title comes with a lot of cool shit, but it comes with a lot of responsibility. And he was making a ton of money, like not a ton. He was making middle-class money. He was comfortable. They could have had a cottage and kids and he could have still sent money home to Cornwall. Yeah. Like, and he was proud of himself. Yeah. Like she was right. Like her education making him more like, there's a scene, a very charming scene in the beginning of the book where she sees him talking to her cook and the cook is giggling while she's making breakfast and then he takes her and he dances her around the room and he's like I was just trying to tell her how much I liked her cooking and I, she wasn't understanding me and I didn't know how else to say it because Winnie is one of the only people who can understand his accent in this world mm. is like so charming but then she like does give him a tool like he's legible to other people and like, he likes his, his legibility and he likes his legibility and he feels more confident and comfortable like isn't that a beautiful ending yeah and it's not the end. <laughs> I know it's yeah. like the book went too far where it's like everything was great everything was grand and then like why fuck it up with making him a secret blue blood it's just like it's so unnecessary it doesn't add anything to either of their journeys I mean she gets her house back I guess but like she was building something new as she had been since she was 17 yeah that was a real disappointment for me but like can we talk about the scene where they go to the bull and ton oh yes so, okay. 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 So he wants to do a dry run on his way of speaking. And he's like, let's go back to the tea shop where you found me and see if anyone recognizes me. <laughs> and one woman recognizes him. But she can't place him because he's clean and doesn't have a mustache. Yeah. She and was the one who like, why don't you come up and see me sometime? Do you know what I didn't realize? Hmm. Do you know that famous scene where Mae West says that? Like, mm-hmm. you can be had. Come, why don't you come up and see me sometime? Mm-hmm. That's fucking. Who is it from Bringing Up Baby? Who is that actor? The Catherine Hepburn is the actress, and Cary Grant. Cary Grant is the guy that she's talking to. Come on up, you can be had. <laughs> That's Cary Grant. Anyways, mm-hmm. so the come up and see me sometime. Oh, turns out she's married to the Lord of the Hounds for the Queen. Yeah, she's and a baronet. She cannot place him but she recognizes him she likes what she sees she's like we've met before where did we meet tell me because his shaved mustache just makes him look more aristocratic sure does he's got an aquiline nose he's got one of those aquiline noses but they get away with it. He's like, I'm a country duke of, and he reads the back, back of, of his spoon. spoon and comes up with that name. And then he's like, she's my fiance. And she's like, whoa, I know. okay. Winnie Bolash, all right. <laughs> she's like, Fair I am. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, they're like high off their hijinks that they got away with it. And they take the public transit to his neighborhood and his neighborhood hangout. She starts drinking lemonade and then she drinks shandies. Which and the book explains as beer and lemonade. And I was like, fuck you, Judith Ivory. And she loves to dance. Ugh. We know this from like the scene where he pretends to not know how to dance. And so she can teach him. And it's her first time dancing with a man. Whenever they dance together. Oh, my God. Uh, the dance scene is really good, y'all. Okay. I want to talk about the scene where they learn how to dance. Because no, I we think, ha- we're at the okay, bulletin. Okay, okay, we'll okay, go okay, back. okay. We'll go back. Um, so the bulletin, um, they start dancing the night gets rowdier and rowdier and then these other women show up and they start dancing on the tables like it's a stage and they start removing their layers and because it's hot and she realizes that it's not necessarily a sexual thing it's just like they're having fun dancing and they can tell she wants to dance so the other women are like come on up here never are the women perceived as like rivals for the affection of the hero never are the women seen as like absurdly slutty and in fact her assumptions of them are proven to be wrong throughout the text as it goes on but these women kind of give Winnie the freedom through dancing and just fellowship one of the things I love most about this scene is that like Winnie wants to dance so bad and like everybody can recognize it and this other girl like Nancy is like come up here love come up here I can see you bouncing your knees come up here and Winnie's like no 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 I don't want to be like my mom no 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 and like it's this insistence I'm like I can see that 
that you want this. Like, yeah. come up, come up, come up. And like, finally she does and it's great. And then like the insistence on like, we're just dancing and then like, you can can-can if you want, you can can-can yeah. if you don't want, whatevs, yeah. it's cool. And that like, the women really enfold her in this moment where it's like, we are just enjoying this moment yeah. and our bodies and our movement and all of this. And it's like the first time that Winnie's like had fucking female friends. And then like the unbuttoning of her. But it's also the first time she's had like physical pleasure. Right. That's really the first instance where she's allowed to like enjoy herself physically and and own her enjoyment of yeah. her physicality. Where before like Mick is like performing something on her yeah. or like pushing her boundaries. But this is the moment where she's like, no, I'll get up. No, yeah. I will unlace my jabbit. Yeah. No, I'll do this. I'll take off my coat. And like it happens in slow degrees over the course of like a very long scene. But like that's one of the things that I thought was so beautifully put about the scene is like you're exactly right. She's never in comparison with these women. They're never sexual rivals. None of them are sluts, which is great. And all of this is just about joy. It's yeah. such a joyous scene. It feels exactly the like the scene in Titanic. as well. Like totally. it doesn't have anything to do with like Mick or the male gaze in general. Like it's just about having a good time. And then because of that, it feels like a real moment of empowerment when they go out into the alley and do hand stuff. Oh my God. <laughs> and like he does this whole thing where he props open the door and she's like, that's so nice. He's letting the cool in for all the other patrons. But what he's really done is created a dark alcove where they can fuck. Yeah. They don't fuck. They, they don't. They, it's real close though. It's a near thing. Yeah, they do hand stuff. But she takes initiative and it's like what she wants to do. And anyways, and then they go back in afterwards and there's this guy who's slumming it and he's like very interested in Winnie because she's confident and Beautiful. feeling her oats. And he's like, you're slumming it like me. We should be together. And so Mick does his like little fancy boy accent to like ward off this romantic rival. It's just great. That was great. Do you want to go back to the dancing? So the dance scene. She loves to dance. She's only ever danced with other women. So that means that she's always been the lead because she's the teacher. Yes. This is where Judith Ivory's writing, this is where it shines because she is so good at pulling out all the feelings, teasing out all the sensations of a messy situation. Like it doesn't have to be just sexy. It doesn't have to be just interesting. It can also be like frustrating and uncomfortable and anxiety ridden and also sexy and exciting. Like, and that is what this scene is because we have Mick pretending that he doesn't know how to dance. We have Edwina feeling really confident and having her confidence shaken by the fact that she can't stop leading because she's always led and he's asking her not to. And them trying to figure out each other, which is a real thing. And this book so beautifully captures a real thing in a way that feels true and also celebratory. And is really where like the romance genre for me shines is it takes reality and presents it as it is, but in such a way that you're like, this feeling is good. Mm -hmm. This bad, messy, exciting, new feeling is good. And I get to relive it or I get to live it for the first time through this book because it does such a beautiful job of illustrating it. And I think Judith Ivory in Beast and in this, like she is so good about teasing out that sparkle in the messy moments of life of two people meeting. Not only meeting, but like constantly meeting each other and all of the vagaries of that where it's like she's been leading for over a decade and he's like, you got to let me lead. That That's how this works. Like take off your shoes. Like make yourself a little bit more uncomfortable so that like you're just a little off kilter so that I can actually lead so that you're not fighting me on yeah she's like I'm not fighting you and he's like you are and she's like I'm not and he's like I'm not gonna fight you about whether or not you're leading because it's just like it's evident that you are and all of that and like the thing that she does that's so great is like sometimes like you know a character will say something that's just true like you're leading she's like I'm not then the character has to take a moment to be like oh yeah you were right I'm really sorry I like that is so fucking relatable. And it's like, no, the thing that you just said that I'm like really worried about, no. But actually, yeah. There was a point where I was like, God, this scene's going on forever. I wish they would just get good at dancing. And I'm like, yeah, that's so good. That's such a brilliant way to manipulate. Like, I am totally in their perspective now because I'm like, fuck, why can't this just work? It is so good. And then at the end, when they like fall on the floor and she like rests her head on his chest. <gasps> oh my God, because she like slips. There's this decaying piano because like the detritus of her former life and like the screw slips and she like steps on it and her 
hurts her foot and he gives her a foot massage. That's how they end up on the floor. He kneels down and lifts up her stocking foot and starts giving her a foot massage. And then they're like both on the floor and he's like really going for it. And I'm like, foot massages are so intimate. They are. It's a weird thing to do for your grandma. Stop. It's like, yeah, you do that for intimate partners and like babies because you're worried about their reflexes. But like... I just like I forgot and like that's the thing about this book where there's also the idea of him like kneeling kneeling and then there's like bowing his head so that he doesn't make her uncomfortable and then like up her foot 10 seconds later in the scene like he says something (sighs) shitty to her and she like slaps him yes she sees the red welt rising and she feels bad and then she touches it and then she like touches his whole face and like goes down his like stupid aquiline nose and like touches his lips where like the mustache used to be the offensive beautiful mustache and then he like takes her hand and then he like kisses it with his open mouth and like fucking tongues her palm oh my god i'm so turned on Judith Ivory, I think, does this great job of realizing that, like, it's not weird to want to suck your lover's toes Mm -mm. because you're just like if you're obsessed with a person, like you just want to like consume them entirely. Like everything is sexy. Everything is beautiful. You can't get enough of it. You just want to kiss all of it and you want to taste all of it and you want to show them how much you like it by like doing that and like how comfortable you are and willing to like subjugate yourself. Right. To like kneeling before them to licking their palm to like he says this thing to her where he's like I'm gonna like kiss up all of your legs I like you know it's a scene after the dreadful first scene he's like I'm gonna kiss up all of you and I'm gonna kiss your junction and then I'm just gonna sleep there yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's just like it's not about necessarily like sexy parts and it's not necessarily about doing like the most obvious sexual thing with sexy parts right he just wants to sleep on her. Yeah, he wants to sleep on her open thighs, like next to her pussy. Just yeah, so you can like smell it and like take it in. And like he says, and that he to just her. wants to like suck on her palm, yeah, like, the skin of her palm. Like it's just so good. It's and insanity. Like, and like the idea of her like getting this obsessive idea about his mustache. Oh my god! And it never goes away throughout the whole book. Yeah, her thinking about his mustache and that he gave away his mustache and, and that. Like she wants can it back. sometimes see the shadow of it at yeah. like five o'clock, whatever. Oh, God. This book. It's a hot little potato. It's so hot. It's like <laughs> stupid hot, especially since it basically has exactly one penetrative sex scene. But like all of it is sex scene. I feel like all of this is foreplay. It's yeah, like it's just 700 a- pages of foreplay. Yeah, that's true. It's just one big dank sex scene. Yeah. There's the part where he goes to the ball and he brings his dying old ferret in his cloak and keeps it a secret from her. And then she figures it out. But there's something like... Like, to me so exciting about the fact that he still has secrets from her because after they have sex that first night they just have sex like bunnies for three days yeah. Milton the butler leaves to visit his aforementioned sister because he can't stand it the cook just refuses to show up yeah. out of like the kindness of her heart she's like fuck like bunnies you deserve it yeah yeah they're just constantly they're just fucking for three days until the ball yeah they are and then like the fact that they still have secrets was like so exciting to me and like so even though she totally fucks it up because she doesn't know what to do with his life and she's like I know it's best I gotta get this ferret out of his cloak and then she's like shit I lost the ferret The ferret was scared of me. And then her biggest fear isn't like that the ferret is going to give them away as it was before. It's like, oh my God, I lost his ferret. Yeah. He's going to be so sad that I lost his ferret. So sad and mad. And like she goes through the thing where she's like, I can lie about it or I can actually own it. And she has this like whole thing where she's like, I'm afraid. And like she feels the feelings of her social anxiety. And she's like, no, my intentions were good. I'm going to apologize for the wrong that I did. And then I'm going to like ask for his help in the solution. Yeah. And her like, trust in another human being really allows her to overcome her anxiety in that moment which is really wonderful and transcendent and also just in the moment when she loses the ferret she's like he's going to be so upset she realizes what matters most to her which is not social status just in time to discover that he's actually a duke fuck (laughs) god I really didn't I like it really sucks sex so bad I'm really sick of this secret shit I am 
them too. Like, fuck you, secret royals. Just be royal or not. Also, what's yeah. wrong with the working class? What is wrong with the working class? We deserve happy endings too. Exactly. And we don't, like, it's not as though our blood deserves to be blue. And, like, that's no. what our happiness exactly. is based on. Fuck you. I have an aquiline nose and I'm as peasant as peasant gets. And also, like, fucking, like, oh, no one needs to give up anything to be with me. Being with me is the thing. Being with me is the thing. You're exactly right. Like, it's not that I deserve to be a blue blood. Like, it's not. It's not that anybody deserves to be a blue blood. That's all a fucking lie. Ugh. Working class historical romances only from here on out. Guys. 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 Folk. Folks. Friends. Come on. What's wrong with the working class? drudgery it's not romantic it's not fantasy but like and that's the thing where the jade like, temptress it was still romantic and in this book it was still romantic yeah until it broke until it broke like him being a rat catcher and like him being like come see my work come see what i do come see me be capable oh and he was so excited to like show, show her, her and didn't know at what point he should ask her to leave because it was gonna get gross and bloody and it's like here's the thing it's like you can have a job and be satisfied that the job does the thing that it does pays your bills and allows you to send money home home for your 14 siblings your job doesn't have to define you like she keeps calling him the rat catcher but then like she makes the correction and then she just refers to him as mick and then my mick uh-huh. and like that's an important thing and like you know i hate it that we like go to cocktail parties and everyone's like oh what's your name what do you do yeah and it's like what i do isn't as interesting as the last book that i read or like the hobby that i have or yeah. like you know whatever and it felt like this book wanted to get into that conversation where it's like he's a rat catcher sure and he's capable at it and it's good work it's good honest work does the thing it's supposed to do which is keep body and soul together but it's also like he's so much more he's an excellent mimic he loves to read he makes puns he's got great friends he's got great friends and people love to talk to him and hear him tell stories he is beloved and so it's like by then turning him into the secret lost duke it's like all the good work that you did though yeah it it even undoes his work as a rat catcher like it takes this really well-rounded person and flattens him out for the rest of eternity like this flattening isn't does doesn't feel like a happily ever after no because where is he supposed to go from here I guess he's gonna sit in parliament and like make laws about rat catching i guess i don't know i'm bored just thinking about it and it's such a sexy book. oh my god this book was like titillating to the nth degree it was like the wrist kissing scene in beast but the whole book i was gonna say this book is like sexier than beast this book is better oh, than beast in my mind yes this book surpassed beast for me yeah for sure 1999 what was going on in 1999 we were partying like it was 1999 oh i see i see what you did there <laughs> We were all scared that the computers weren't going to know to switch over. Y2K. TRL was on TV. Carson Daly had like several black fingernails because he was edgy. He was showing us a new side of himself. I'm going to Google what won the Academy Award in 1999. Please do. It's two years after Titanic. Do you want to guess? Ooh, I don't know that I can guess two years after Titanic. I'll see what won the Grammy. Oh, my God. What? Isabeau. Oh, my God. Shakespeare in love. So sexy. Album oh. of the year? Grammy. Supernatural by Santana. That makes sense. Girl, me, oh, I make it real. Well, let's forget about it. Mm. The Boy is Mine by Brandy and Monica was nominated. Hell yeah. And Iris by Goo Goo Dolls. I don't want the world to see me. Isabel, have I told you about the source material for City of Angels? Yes, you have. Have you watched it? No, it's in my queue. What's it on? You just mean mentally. It's in your queue. I got really excited first. <laughs> Sorry. Wings of Desire. Yeah. Gonna rent it from Amazon if it's not on anything else. I really feel like um, we should do Womance Party Packs, which are a romance novel and a Criterion Collection DVD. I think we should, too. And, like, here's why. <laughs> because every Criterion movie that Morgan is gonna pick for you that is excellent and beautiful, Isabel's gonna send you What's Your Number? <laughs> You will get a copy of What's Your Number, a copy of maybe it's Wings of Desire, maybe it's The Night Porter. Maybe it's The Night Porter. Maybe Maybe it's it's Crash. Who knows? But you will get What's Your Your Number. number. I love this idea. Romance party packs. You get a romance novel, a copy of What's Your Number, and an accompanying Criterion Collection release. 
nothing can go wrong and everything is right. Donate to our Patreon. Yeah. And you too can have the Woe Man's Woe Pack. We should actually make those party packs available for purchase on our Patreon. You don't get to choose the movies other than what's your number. And you don't get to choose it. It's coming to you. Well, if we did Bully, we would do The Night Porter. Mm. Also, that book wasn't called Bully. (laughs) (laughs) I think it says a lot that you think it was. Never sweeter. That's right. What would this get? In terms of the Criterion Collection. My Fair Lady? No, that's not a Criterion release. What would the proposition get? <laughs> there are lots of Pygmalion type stories out there. There's been so many My Fair Ladies. Pretty Woman. Isn't it interesting that the kiss quotient was like, I'm going to do a My Fair Lady. Yeah, except they said a it's re- Pretty Woman. A reverse Pretty Woman, yeah. And it's like Pretty Woman is, I guess, far enough from the source material that we don't like directly associate it. Yeah, that kind of sucks. You know what was interesting about this? Because there's this scene in My Fair Lady when Pickering and Henry Higgins are like, you did it, you did it. No one thought you could do it, but you really, really did it. And like they don't acknowledge Audrey Hepburn's character, Eliza, at all. And she's like cleaning up after them. Yeah. And like they're congratulating each other. Yeah. And there's a moment here where the Lamont twin brothers are like, you did it, you did it. Like, speak again, canary. And it's not the same because his masculine pride immediately shuts that shit down. Yeah. And I was like, oh, here's one of the very specific differences about a reverse Pygmalion. Yeah. Like a woman just sort of is like, fuck you, silently. I'm going to continue to pick up your shit because like that's what I do but I did it and we as the audience know that she did it and the fact that they're not giving her credit sucks but like she doesn't say it but in the book he's like fuck you what about a reverse Pygmalion where it's not the working class person who causes a sexual awakening it's Mm. the well to do person who causes a sexual awakening and the working class person oh that's like so many levels of like let's do like a real reverse Pygmalion where it's like the working class person is indoctrinating the wealthy person into working class life mm-hmm. and the wealthy person is indoctrinating the working class person into the earthy delights of sexuality. Is it weird if I feel like we covered this in our October book, the one about the Whitechapel murders? Because he was rich and introducing her to sexual stuff and yeah. she was poor and being like, this is what my life is like. That's true. It wasn't good. That book was not good. I don't recommend it. I feel like that was a no man. Yeah, it wasn't a great book, but I think it's closer to the the concept of like a true Pygmalion. Mm -hmm. It was by Eve Silver. Well, the 1938 version of Pygmalion is a Criterion release. Oh. But I think there's something else. I actually really want to think about what my Criterion collection inclusion for this book would be. I think that's fair. I know what my collection is. What's your number? It's so fucking good. It's so good. God, I love that movie. I mean, we would have to charge at least $100 to break even. <laughs> yeah. Because we choose such hard to find books. <laughs> we do. And many of them are not like published, so we would have to print out a copy of the ebook. <laughs> <laughs> I could go to Kinko's for that. <laughs> you, you want a manuscript? Well, man, so do that for you, listener. Uh, okay. Weirdest part. Weirdest part of Secret Duke. Yeah, for sure. I'm like trying to think of like other anything, but like, yeah, the thing that breaks the novel is Secret Duke. I guess the way that he sort of like shrugs off my mom was keeping body and soul together by being a sex worker, which is how I got the rest of my siblings, six through eight. I think it's kind of nice. Yeah. I mean, he was chill about it, but it's like also everyone just like goes with it. I was like, that's fascinating. Is it weird or is it like good that they're not making a thing out of it? It was good that they weren't making a thing out of it. It was just like, I was surprised that they're... It's shocking for a book from 1999, a romance novel from 1999 that's just like, I also feel like it'd be shocking for now where it's like haha my mom's sex work resulted in more mouths to feed yeah (laughs) oh no my weirdest part when they do have penetrative sex nobody talks about birth control of any kind even though both of them think that this relationship is doomed yeah that's a really good point he's just like boom I'm inside of you I'm like coming and I'm like uh it was like you would know how to pull out Mick Tramore weirdest part for me she never records his original accent yes she talks about it the whole time and then she doesn't do it. it It's her whole job. It's really falling down there. 
sexiest part. Oh my god. The whole book? I would say my sexiest part, my sexiest unadorned part where like I just enjoyed the sexuality of it and like didn't have to examine yeah. the boundary pushing or like the non-consensual yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, When they're on the floor and he's rubbing her foot and then like fucking like tongue fucks her palm. Those, like, Dance class scene. Yeah, it was like unadulterated. There wasn't, it wasn't complicated by anything that I had to be like, you suck. The scene where, for me, the scene where he just thinks about her putting her fingers in his mouth mm. and likes it. That was really good. A scene we haven't talked about is the fact that he uses some of his last earnings because he knows he's got this other job coming up to buy her a ball gown so that she can join him at the ball. I'm dead. I'm done. And it's so beautiful. It's like a real pretty and pink moment. Not oh just because God. she's a redhead and he gets her a pink, pink dress. dress. And he like sells his dog magic. And, and like all magic. the other. And she's so sad. And he's like, you don't get to be sad over this. Like I loved magic, but I loved you more. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, there's all this stuff at the end of the book where he's like, goodbye forever, my love. My love. That's like devastating. Oh my God, it's so good. Wrecked. It's so good. Romance or no man? Obviously a romance. Romance. I'm going to be recommending this to everyone forever. It was so good. Oh, it was so good. Also, it's so much better than Beast. Yeah. I liked it better than Beast. I'm not like willing to be like, Beast was trash. This is where it's at. No, like you get to like, you get to have your faves. I I liked Beast, but I liked this a lot better. I feel like this had a lot fewer questions for me. (laughs) They're a lot more likable than <laughs> I feel like Beast is almost like an experiment in like yeah. how big of cunts can I create that you would still be like, I want them to end up together. That's right. And this is just like, they aren't even cunts. They're just broken. Yeah. And they're just like, they're not made different. They're not made whole or anything. They're just mm. made like clearer through one another. They yeah. understand themselves better. Yeah. Ah, I love them. It's so good. At one point he even calls her a mirror into his better self. And I was like, Jesus Christ. That's too good. This book is so good. Everyone should read it. Nick and Winnie forever. <laughs> Nick and Winnie forever. All right. With that, loosen your stays. But never your prince. Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>